0: Colombia's Truth Commission calls for an end to the drug war. The Commission's report on over 60 years of armed conflict in Colombia found, to nobody's surprise, that the war on drugs is a failure. On June 28th, Colombia's post-conflict Comisión de la Verdad Truth Commission presented its final report on the country's internal armed conflict, including summary findings and recommendations spanning six decades from 1958 to 2018. As a condition of the 2016 Peace Accord signed with the FARC, or Fuerzas Armadas Revolucionarias de Colombia, formerly the country's largest and most well-armed rebel group, the commission spent the last three and a half years interviewing over 28,000 victims and perpetrators of the last 60 years of violence in Colombia, which left more than 450,000 people dead, or up to 800,000 if unofficial figures are counted, 120,000-plus disappeared and almost 8 million forcibly displaced from their homes as a direct result of the internal conflict. One of the main findings of the commission's report is that the so-called war on drugs has been a fracasso, or failure, that it was one of the main contributors to prolonging and intensifying the conflict in Colombia, and that countries like the United States should end prohibition and pursue policies of legalization and regulation of drugs like cocaine and marijuana in order to help return a measure of peace and stability to a part of the world which has been racked by chaos and violence for decades, largely due to the criminalization of drugs like cocaine and marijuana. The report was unambiguous in its condemnation of the drug war. Here is just one paragraph translated from the text of the 896-page Findings and Recommendations chapter. Quote, The current paradigm of the war against drugs has been a failure. It did not produce effective results to dismantle drug trafficking as a political and economic system, not just its criminal manifestation. Furthermore, it created an enormous number of victims in the framework of the internal armed conflict. Prohibition created narratives of criminalization against populations and territories that justified violent operations and the spraying of glyphosate generated impacts in the lives of rural communities and of nature. Jesuit father Francisco de Rue, chairman of the Truth Commission, presented the report to a packed theater of onlookers, including representatives of diverse communities from all over the country, victims of the violence, members and employees of the commission, and politicians, including the president-elect of Colombia, Gustavo Petro. The current president, Ivan Duque, was in Portugal attending the inauguration of a new maritime protection zone and didn't officially receive the report until a few days later in the Casa de Nariño, Colombia's presidential residence. Quote, we bring a message of hope and a future for our violated and broken nation, said Daru during the presentation. Uncomfortable truths that challenge our dignity, a message for all of us as human beings, beyond political opinions or ideologies, of cultures and religious beliefs, of ethnicities and gender, we bring a message of truth to end the intolerable tragedy of the conflict. Unquote. It is perhaps fitting that the report was presented in a theater named for Jorge Eliezer Gaitán, the popular leftist leader whose assassination in 1948 kicked off the orgy of retributive destruction in the capital, known as the Bogotazo, and which led to the beginnings of Colombia's armed conflict in the form we recognized from recent decades. Anti-government rebels fled into the country's vast hinterlands following Gaetan's killing, Spent the next couple of decades fighting a running guerrilla war against the army, and were precursors of the FARC, among other leftist guerrilla organizations. The Truth Commission's report has been disputed by some, including members of the armed forces, who believe they have been unfairly maligned for their actions over the course of the conflict. Some are angry about facts which were left out of the report due either to insufficient evidence or just lack of space. The report itself runs for 11 chapters and thousands of pages, not all of which have been made available to the public yet, and are due to be released in their totality by the end of August 2022. According to the report, quote, Drug trafficking should be seen as a protagonist of the Colombian armed conflict and as a factor in its persistence, unquote. The report continues, Quote, however it should also be seen as a strong influence on the politics and economy of the country owing to the fact that it reproduces a form of mafioso accumulation using violence of wealth and power from an illegalized prohibition economy which must be legalized by means of the national and international economic system in order to understand why drug trafficking has had such a profound role in prolonging colombia's internal conflict it's important to know something about the context in which it took place In Colombia, almost unlimited drug money flowing into the hands of anyone unscrupulous enough to pursue it catalyzed the rise and fall of rebel guerrillas, paramilitaries, criminal gangs, cartels, drug lords, corrupt politicians, and members of the military. Ever since U.S. President Richard Nixon decided in the late 1960s to make drugs illegal in order to execute an ideological, classist, racist agenda against African Americans, other minority groups, and the U.S. counterculture writ large. But while Nixon and his ilk were busy persecuting those damned hippies and throwing black people in jail for having joints in their pockets, the knock-on effects of making most recreational drugs illegal was starting to build into a wave of criminality and violence the likes of which the world has never seen. There is a reason that Colombia today is synonymous both with drugs and with lawlessness, and that reputation is well-deserved. But that leaves out much of the story of the history of this fascinating and beautiful country. The millions of ordinary people whose lives have been upended by decades of chaos, and the processes which took place over time leading to the Colombia we know today. The end result is that anybody who uses cocaine today has blood on their hands, whether they know it or not. And blood doesn't wash off easy. How the U.S. beat the drums of war in Colombia. Colombia's internal conflict in its present or previous form has been going on since at least the 1960s, and its roots go all the way back to the country's founding. Political violence has etched every page of Colombia's history in blood, but it wasn't until marijuana and then cocaine became the world's hottest illegal commodities that the mayhem and bloodshed began to reach the frenzied, horrifying, and deeply sad level we know today. Cocaine in particular has been the catalyst keeping armed guerrillas, paramilitaries, narcotraffickers, the military, and every single person in Colombia living with a gun to their head for the last 60 years. Wade Davis, a Canadian ethnobotanist and writer who's traveled to Colombia since the 1970s and has watched the entire history of the armed conflict play out against the backdrop of his own botanical expeditions, interactions with native communities, and living and working with people in Colombia, writes in the preface to his fantastic book, Magdalena, River of Dreams. "...Colombians, most of whom have never used or seen cocaine, have lived with the consequences of the trade for two generations." For four terrible years, from 1996 to 2000, a kidnapping occurred in Colombia every three hours of every day. Altogether, 30,000 men, women, and children were torn from their families, many never to return. By 2012, nearly 5 million Colombians had abandoned their country, some by choice, others desperate to escape the violence. Within Colombia, those displaced by the conflict numbered more than 7 million. Imagine how differently the people of the United States would feel about their war on drugs, not to mention their casual consumption of cocaine in bars and boardrooms across the nation, if they knew that as a consequence of both obsessions, no fewer than 80 million fellow Americans would be driven from their homes or forced into exile, It wouldn't just be exile from their homes and their country which awaited these erstwhile citizens. Violent attacks, rape, torture, murder, disappearances, mass killings, forced recruitment, child soldiers, human trafficking, and all the very worst aspects of human nature, these were regular features of the internal conflict in Colombia. And through it all, the illegal drug trade kept the money flowing into the coffers of the FARC, paramilitaries like the Autodefensas Unidas de Colombia, or United Self-Defense Forces of Colombia, AUC, a heavily armed militia with links to the Cali cartel, and even state actors through drug money which infiltrated the political system or through outright corruption. Former President Ernesto Samper, in a scandal which rocked Colombia in the 1990s, took millions of dollars from the Cali cartel to help fund his political campaigns. According to the Truth Commission's report, quote, every actor in the armed conflict had relations with narco-trafficking, and these links were determinants in the course of the war, its deterioration and degradation, and ultimately with its continuation, unquote. In the beginning, the first cocaine cartels, like Pablo Escobar's Medellin cartel, fought over control of territory, both for production and exportation of the drug from Colombia, then for control of distribution in places like the United States and Europe, leading to scenes of bloody street violence in Miami and elsewhere that many Americans remember well. Later, Marxist rebel guerrilla movements like the FARC and M-19, President-elect Petro's former comrades, became involved in the drug trade in order to finance their operations, which brought confrontations with rural communities and with the cartels, along with a huge uptick in violence. The paramilitaries were the next stage in the conflict. Some of them began, innocently enough, under the banners of legitimate autodefensas, or self-protection forces, by rural townspeople and campesinos who had no choice but to take up arms to protect themselves in the absence of state intervention. However, the so-called paras were soon corrupted by the vast amounts of money to be made in the drug trade, and many of them began to form alliances with narco-traffickers, since they did not share the same extensive political motivations as the Marxist guerrillas, and saw no other choice than to join forces with the cartels. You now had a three-pronged assault on the peace and tranquility of the lives of ordinary Colombians in all the rural areas and remote regions where coca was grown and processed into cocaine before being shipped abroad, wherein the cartels, guerrilla, and paras all fought for control. But there was a fourth actor waiting in the wings, one which had been fighting the rebels since the beginning, and was now about to re-enter the fray, instigating some of the worst violence seen in the course of the armed conflict, the Colombian state. The Truth Commission indicates that the decision to declare war against narco-trafficking made during the 1980s as being done under the political influence of the United States, who was looking for ways to reduce the flow of illegal drugs into its borders, The commission, in the course of its investigation, had access to thousands of declassified documents from both the U.S. and Colombian governments, many of which were leaked or distributed in the course of previous investigations, and the involvement of the U.S. State Department, Central Intelligence Agency, and Drug Enforcement Administration, among others, in pressuring Colombia to pursue certain anti-drug policies or take aggressive action on many occasions and many different political, economic, or military fronts is crystal clear. Now that the government was ramping up an active campaign on two fronts against both narco-traffickers and the guerrilla, the Paras saw an opportunity to polish up their image with the sheen of legitimacy. They began to negotiate in secret with the government and military to act as a sort of unofficial fourth estate of Colombia's armed forces, taking the fight to the guerrilla in places that the army could not, and using tactics that might bring uncomfortable questions from the public about how that force was being used. That is... Extrajudicial killings, disappearances, taking over entire rural towns and communities, straight-up massacres in places like Montes de Maria, and the later phenomenon of falsos positivos, or false positives, in which civilians were summarily executed and their bodies passed off as guerrillas killed in action, in order to satisfy demands from higher up for enemy body counts. Even though the Paras were supposedly acting in conjunction with the military in the fight against the popularized image of the narco they were, at the same time, pursuing their own goals of controlling the drug trade. What's more, some members of the military, as well as political and business elites, were looking to get a little taste of that unlimited stream of cash flowing into the country. The Medellin cartel at one point was bringing in so much money that they were counting it by weighing it out in one-ton bales. And over the course of the conflict, less scrupulous soldiers, politicians, and businessmen were making shadowy handshake deals with all sides in order to line their own pockets. All of this took place with the tacit approval of the United States, which only seemed to care about numbers. Numbers of captured or killed drug traffickers, impounded shipments of cocaine and marijuana, acres of coca fields fumigated, and cocaine production facilities shut down or destroyed. Presidents, politicians, and military officers were commended by U.S. officials for numbers-go-up-type results against traffickers, with little or no concern for the collateral damage caused along the way. Colombia was given millions of dollars in financial aid, weapons, and counterinsurgency training by the U.S. military, along with intelligence support by the CIA, who both leveraged technological innovations like satellite surveillance and wiretapping – and acted as a middleman between the Colombian government, paramilitaries, and various clandestine contacts with traffickers and armed groups in order to accomplish their own nefarious goals. While Nancy Reagan and Barbara Bush went on television to endorse Drug Abuse Resistance Education, or Dare. I still remember when a police officer would come to my school and give presentations where we were told to, quote, just say no to drugs, unquote, which only made us want to try drugs more. Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and George W. Bush were all pushing more aggressive and destructive military counter-narcotics actions, as well as glyphosate, a chemical plant killer, spraying in the Colombian countryside. Through it all, it was rural townspeople and campesinos, country dwellers, and small farmers who suffered the most. Rural Colombians Caught in the Middle One of the less discussed aspects of the drug war is how poor rural campesinos are forced to participate in the production and distribution of cocaine, either because growing coca just pays better than anything else, other profitable crops won't grow on their land, or because they're extorted, cajoled, or threatened into growing coca for cocaine producers. Throughout Colombia's enormous, largely undeveloped countryside— partly due to the intractable armed conflict, where soaring mountain peaks give way to deep river valleys and sweltering, steamy jungles open onto endless wetlands and the vast eastern plains of the Llano. People have to make their way however they can. Still a developing economy, many people in communities across Colombia live what to us in the modern, developed world seem like antiquated 19th century lifestyles. I still remember the first time I visited my wife's family, Finca, her farm or country house, in the hills outside Bogotá. The house itself has electricity and water from the local aqueduct, since Colombia has done a tremendous job of wiring up the countryside over the decades with limited resources in what is a very challenging geographical landscape. We warmed ourselves by lighting a fire in the big open fireplace, and her mother made agua de panela, a traditional substitute for coffee made from raw sugar or panela for us to drink. But there was no cell phone service, no internet, and only a few bare light bulbs provided light to see by at night. The power goes out constantly there, and the water supply sometimes dries up for no apparent reason. At night it is dark and silent, and you sit listening to the howling of the wind through the cracks in the walls, windows, and doors, the chirping of frogs and the quebrada which runs below the house, the calling of night birds, and the buzzing of huge potato beetles which bump stupidly into windows and lights. In the morning, cows in the nearby pastures call out to be milked. Birds of a hundred different varieties sing and flutter about from sunrise to sunset. And you sometimes hear the thumping of a nearby amplifier from some campesino house blasting out reggaeton, vallenato, salsa, merengue, rancheras, or any of the myriad musical styles which Colombians love to play at top volume during all hours. The colors and depth of variety of the trees, plants, and flowers is astonishing even at high altitude where there's less oxygen and warmth from the tropical sun to sustain them. Though they are bathed in the intense, unfiltered mountain sunlight, which can burn the skin of a gringo like me within a few minutes, but travel just a little bit deeper into the countryside and modernity starts to taper out. The electrical wires become thinner and harder to maintain, the houses become poorer and more dilapidated, some without even running water, and many people still ride and work on mules or horseback heavy machinery being harder and more expensive to come by, and more difficult to bring up the treacherous terrain. In Cundinamarca, the high mountain department where Bogota and Subachoque, the municipality of my wife's finca, are located, potatoes, corn, beans, and other crops line the fields and hillsides. All around the finca are potato plantations, which climb the surrounding hills in what is an astonishing feat of acrobatics for both the plants and the people who work them. This is the reality for the majority of Colombians, 90% of whom live in rural areas. Cities and large settlements are the exception in this country, and government resources to support, control, and enforce laws and regulations in the far flung and difficult to navigate rurality of the countryside are limited. For a country with such an extensive regulatory structure, it's astonishing how little enforcement actually takes place. But the problem is not the will to do so, it's lack of resources and of the budget to allocate those resources where they're most needed. The problems of itinerant crime in cities like Bogota are less due to there being a higher number of criminals there, but more to a handicapped police presence. The same is true for coca growing and drug trafficking. The country is simply too vast, and there are just too few authorities to control it all. The funny thing about coca is, the plant itself actually provides tremendous health benefits. Indigenous communities throughout South America have been using coca as a stimulant, natural reliever of altitude sickness, Accompaniment to religious rituals and other traditional applications for thousands of years It wasn't until Europeans came in and figured out how to process the leaf into the powerful cocaine alkaloid Then discovered the never-ending possibilities of abusing the drug That coca started to present a problem for modern people Indigenous people knew how to activate the stimulant properties of the plant By chewing it with powdered lime or other alkaline substances But it took modern ingenuity to scale it up to the kind of industrialized production we see today Wade Davis, the aforementioned anthropologist and ethnobotanist, spent years alongside colleagues studying coca and its uses among indigenous people in Colombia, Peru, Bolivia, and elsewhere in Latin America. He writes that, quote, snorting cocaine instead of chewing the coca leaf is like taking pure caffeine instead of drinking coffee, unquote. The plant contains a number of other nutritional and beneficial compounds which native peoples have been using forever. And one of the tragedies of coca prohibition is that the rest of us are unable to take advantage of these benefits. The story is much the same with marijuana. Now that it's starting to come out from under the shadow of illegality, it can be studied and applied more broadly to treat all kinds of conditions, from arthritis to Alzheimer's, to cancer, to enhance creativity, or just to alleviate boredom. Coca-Cola, the most popular soft drink in the world, is still flavored with coca today, despite widespread belief that the practice was ended over a century ago. The only time coca was not found in Coca-Cola was during the short-lived release of New Coke, which was almost universally despised, forcing the company to revert to its original coca-based flavoring. Stepan Laboratories in New Jersey is the only legal importer of coca leaves in the United States, which it obtains from a few specially licensed farms in Peru and Bolivia, notably not Colombia. The company extracts the coca flavoring from the leaves and uses the rest to produce medical-grade cocaine, which it sells to Mallinckrodt Incorporated, the only pharmaceutical company in the U.S. allowed to process it. For more on this fascinating story, which touches on the history of Coca-Cola, Monsanto, and the rise of global capitalism, you can pick up a copy of Barton Elmore's Citizen Coke. The sad reality of most coca growers is that, unless they're part of indigenous communities with special dispensations from the government, What they're doing is still very illegal, as needless and ridiculous as that might be, and law enforcement has no problem treating their actions as such. They might be poor rural farmers, but the United States government, and an increasingly reticent Colombian government, feels that it has no choice but to continue pushing for the spraying of chemical desiccants, typically compounds like glyphosate, which has been shown to be damaging to human health, and the health of the natural environment over which it is dispersed, typically via aircraft. Most coca plantations are found where rural people live, deep in the countryside, in the midst of complex natural ecosystems where unbelievable varieties of plants and animal life grow. Colombia, in particular, is second only to Brazil in the amount of biodiversity that can be found here, and first in terms of biodiversity per square meter. One of the many ironies of the protracted internal conflict in Colombia is that, since so many areas were inaccessible due to the presence of armed groups, huge swaths of Colombia ended up being inadvertently protected from exploitation by developers or resource extractors, even illegal logging and mining operations that were kept at bay for fear of the violence when armed groups weren't engaging in it themselves. Part of the story of forced displacement in Colombia is that guerrillas and paramilitaries often found it more expedient to just force people off their land— in order to use it for various illicit activities, such as illegal logging of virgin rainforest, strip mining for gold, lithium, and other precious minerals, or the processing of cocaine. Now that the conflict is coming to an end, although many armed groups are still present in the countryside, some of these destructive extractive forces are starting to encroach on these pristine natural areas, eyeing them with greedy intent. However, there's a strong vein of love for nature running through many Colombians, and much has already been done to protect many unspoiled wilderness areas around the country. It will be up to all Colombians in the coming years and decades how they collectively wish to dispense with their wealth of natural resources, what will be protected, what will be left to nature, and what will be opened up for exploitation. Absence of Responsibility for Enforcing the Peace President Duque's absence from the Truth Commission's public delivery of a report, which explicitly details government involvement in and failures to circumvent the conflict, along with the blame it places on other armed groups, is indicative of state failures to promote and enforce provisions of the agreement which ostensibly ended the conflict in 2016. The peace accords between the FARC and the government of then-President Juan Manuel Santos – who received a Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts, both ended the FARC as a militarized rebel force in Colombia and established the Truth Commission, along with other legal entities to handle the transition and to pursue the same report delivered at the end of June. However, Duque's government has been glacially slow to implement many of the agreements that were made with the FARC and its ex-commander, Rodrigo Londoño, or Timochenko, which were meant to help former rebels demobilize and reenter civilian society. Demobilization centers went underfunded, so that they often resembled muddy refugee encampments full of hungry, desperate people. Skills retraining programs were not adequately staffed or supported, and promised housing for demobilized guerrillas failed to appear. Even worse, revenge campaigns and assassinations against former FARC soldiers, officers, and operatives were allowed to take place due to lack of protection, even when officials knew that threats had been made against the ex-guerrillas. There are many reasons why the government has failed up to now to fully implement the peace accords, and politics is just one of them. Even with its wealth of natural resources, Colombia is not a rich country. Despite the billions, perhaps trillions of dollars that have been made off the backs of its people by drug traffickers, petroleum exporters, and the logging of rainforests and mining of precious metals, legal or otherwise, extraction economies tend to wind up benefiting just a few people at the top of the economic ladder, with those who bear the brunt of abusive labor practices and environmental damage left behind by negligent companies receiving few, if any, of the promised benefits of their efforts. There's a constant tug-of-war going on for money needed to fund all kinds of public initiatives, including demobilizing the FARC, and graft is a perennial issue in Colombia, as it is throughout Latin America. So in many cases, people running these programs just couldn't get the money they needed to accomplish their stated goals. But there is also a deep reservoir of pain and indifference which runs through Colombian society, like the waters of the Magdalena the eponymous River of Dreams, which traverses the country from the high Potomos and plateaus of the Andes, through the mountains, valleys, jungles, mangrove swamps, and llanos to the sea, where it spills into the Caribbean along with the turmoil, tears, thoughts, hopes, and dreams of all Colombians. After 60 years and more of fighting brother against brother, sister against sister, even fathers and mothers against their own children, Colombia is experiencing a collective case of post-traumatic stress. While the young try to forget everything that has happened and move on from the violence, often without dealing with its consequences, which are still very real, The old cannot forget, and many spend their days mired in memories of loss, tragedy, and hate for the people who inflicted profound wounds on their bodies, minds, families, lands, and lives. Truth and Reconciliation In South Africa, after the end of apartheid, wise people recognized that it would not be enough to just round up everyone who had perpetrated all the violence and injustice and punish them accordingly. All that would do was lead to further cycles of resentment and hatred, Instead, both victims and perpetrators of political violence were invited to come and give testimony, to tell their stories, and to request amnesty, which in many cases was granted to perpetrators once all the facts were known. The idea was to avoid further retributive violence and to allow the victims to confront their victimizers, for the victimizers to ask forgiveness, and for the victims to give it, even if they would never forget what was done to them, though still living in any case. In Colombia... The Jurisdicción Especial para la Paz, or Special Jurisdiction for Peace, was set up, following the peace accords, to perform a similar feat of restorative, transitional justice. The organization is not without its controversies. After all, the conflict is still very much alive in people's hearts and minds, and it's impossible to know the full truth about everything that happened during more than 60 years of bloody, retributive violence. But the jurisdiction, like the Truth Commission, moves forward with a slow, unrelenting progress, doing what it can to identify victims and determine what actually happened and to dispense justice and amnesty where needed, balanced against the political necessities, deep resentments, and reactionary fervor of both past and present times. Many variations on peace, truth, and reconciliation commissions have been created following protracted internal conflicts in different countries around the world, including other South American nations like Argentina, Peru, and Chile. The most common criticism leveled against these commissions is that they don't do enough to bring all the truth to light, to punish all the perpetrators of violence, and to bring justice to all the victims, to treat everyone involved with total objective fairness. But these sorts of internal conflicts and civil wars are not open-and-shut cases. Even with tens of thousands of hours of interviews, traversing the country from top to bottom, actively seeking out those who deserve remuneration and those who deserve justice in whatever form, or at least to have their stories made known, It's impossible for anyone to discover the full truth about everything that happened. So much of the violence took place under cover of darkness, by assailants unknown, against people who left no trace, sometimes not even their names, behind. To forgive may be divine, but to seek forgiveness, truth, and closure, even knowing that you might never get it, is perhaps the most noble thing any of us can do in life. For many Colombians, just getting up every day and going about their lives after the nightmares that they've endured is an act of sheer will. Those who can forgive, or at least get what help they can to not live with the specter of resentment, revenge, and trauma in their hearts are, in my opinion, living saints and Buddhas walking among us. What the U.S. Can Learn from Colombia's Example The United States, despite its wealth, power, and international prestige, however diminished, could stand to learn a lot from how Colombia has handled a great many challenges for its society. The struggle to end the internal conflict and the pragmatism which led to the 2016 Peace Accords is just one example. Our American society has become so polarized, so divided along real and imaginary political lines, that we are fast approaching the sort of extreme partisanship which led to the outbreak of protracted, low-intensity civil war in Colombia in the first place. We would do well to pay attention to what tends to happen in countries which allow themselves to be split down the middle along religious, political, social, racial, or class lines. In the former Yugoslavia, it was political and ethnic tensions which shattered the Balkan states and caused such tremendous upheaval there in the 1990s. In Rwanda, more than half a million ethnic Tutsis and others were murdered, and some 250,000 to 500,000 women were raped by Hutu militias and gangs in 1994. In Rwanda, many of the victims were killed by hand, hacked to death with machetes, when Hutu extremists used political rivalries and partisan rhetoric to whip their followers into a killing frenzy. I hardly need point to places in Southeast Asia or the Middle East, where sectarian violence has raged out of control for decades, even centuries. Colombia holds perhaps the most potent cautionary tale for the U.S., since it was extreme left-versus-right partisanship which led to the outbreak of war in the first place. This is the current paradigm in what for now is still the world's foremost economic and military power. Although with countries like China nipping at our heels, there's no telling how long that will last. To beat a whipping horse of mine once more, the poor old thing, if we don't find a way to overcome our differences and work together again, or at least to live together in relative peace, our society is doomed to fracture, collapse, and perhaps even to open civil war. It's happened before in the U.S., and it can happen again. Prolonging the drug war, which has by now been well-documented and proven to be nothing but a pointless and destructive endeavor, will only serve to hasten the downfall of the American empire. If the country of my birth has any intention of saving itself, it will follow the recommendations of Columbia's Truth Commission and end the prohibition of marijuana, cocaine, opium, psychedelics, and other psychoactive substances in as fast and expedient a manner as possible, while transitioning to a legal, regulated, and, best of all for the government, taxed recreational drug regime. The full list of findings and recommendations listed in the Truth Commission's final report are too numerous to repeat here, but if you would like to read the text yourself, it is available on the Commission's website. Unfortunately, most of the text is only available in Spanish at the moment, but they have released a key document titled Call for a Great Peace, which has been translated into English and can be downloaded as a PDF onto any device. The document includes detailed information about the history of the armed conflict, the Commission's mandate, its philosophy, the processes employed in generating the report, and concludes with a full list of the summary findings and recommendations, including those regarding ending drug prohibition and the militarized aspect of the war on drugs. Nobody can put voice to these ideas more powerfully than those who have suffered directly from the drug war and Colombia's internal conflict, so I will close with the words of one person interviewed by the commission during its investigation and identified only as, quote, victim campesino mercaderes, unquote which is a small municipality in the Department of Cauca, He says, quote, I think that in order for this not to happen again, we have to start with illicit crops. We have to start with Colombian farmers changing their economic objective from illicit crops and for the government to train farmers that there are other alternatives to survive and that you don't just have to fill up with money to be happy, but even if it's little that you get financially to live in peace.